Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset. It's Sam Bruce. Joined as ever by Christy Doran. And Christy, we've got one of our old favourites back on this week in former Brumbies back rower now with the uh, Austin uh, Gilgronies, which is a bit happening over in Major League Rugby. Uh, Lockie McCaffrey, welcome back to the pod, mate. Thanks for having me, boys. Good to see you. Uh, Christy, mate, there's, uh, let's just say you dropped the bombshell and then jumped on a plane to Chicago last week. Uh, mate, number one, congrats on the scoop. Uh, just a, a massive story uh, for interview with RA chairman Hamish McLennan saying basically that all bets were off uh, from 2024 in terms of the direction of of Super Rugby and exactly what Australia wants to do with its domestic and provincial competitions and beyond. Um, and as I said, first of all, congrats on on a, such a big story. It's been a massive talking point on both sides of the Tasman virtually ever since and has revived this, um, I guess, this uneasy relationship which we've been existing in with New Zealand, or sorry, Rugby Australia has been existing within with New Zealand rugby the, the past few years. So, mate, I guess to start with, can you just fill us in a little bit on the background? Um, I believe you may have been sitting on this for a, for a little period um, and just, yeah, where, where things are at and, and just talk us through it, mate. What was a, a brilliant story? If I sound a little bit delirious, it is because I didn't get much sleep. Um, there's gone are the days where journalists ever flew first class or business class. No, that you're right in the nosebleeds there. Lockie, I'm not sure if you know anything about that, but but you're right, had been sitting on this story for just a little while and and, and it wasn't flippant. You know, there's been a lot of people that have come out in, in the last week, the last five days or so since the story broke, saying, look, this is just purely brinksmanship. They're not going to leave. One of the first questions that I asked Hamish Plenum was, look, what are you going to do if they turn around and they've got no money? Uh, that they're going to offer you. Um, and he said that we have to be prepared to walk away. Um, I, I think that Rugby Australia had a huge decision to make last year and they ended up saying, okay, we'll, we'll have a, a partnership with here with New Zealand. We'll start a Trans-Tasman. But there was a lot of momentum behind Super Rugby AU and it's easy to forget that because everyone likes to um, glamorise New Zealand rugby and the All Blacks particularly, but, you know, you think about 40, what, 41,000, that was at Suncorp, cracking Super Rugby final. Um, and then you'd go into a Bledisloe series where there was 16 all after the first test. The Wallabies probably should have won that. And then the second one, you know, the second and the third, they've gone a typical kind of way, but the Wallabies didn't play terribly in that second match. Um, and then they ended up winning the fourth game. So the idea that Australia needs New Zealand from a super, from a provincial perspective is, is one that's not necessarily proven because we've seen over the last 20 years this relationship and the Wallabies have struggled and Australia's super rugby sides with the exceptions of the Brumbies in 04, um, the Reds uh, in, in 2011 and, and, the, and the Waratahs in 2014 have had pretty poor years. The Brumbies have been probably the outlier there where they've generally been there, thereabouts. But there's a lot to dissect there, but I don't think you can just completely rule out the fact that, that Hamish McLennan was simply doing this uh, as a strategical play. Um, you know, that dinner took place a good week and a half before the story was released. It had stakeholder approval. It was run through the entire board. Um, there's a lot more than just meets the eye here, I think, with this one. Lockie, uh, your reaction to it, I guess, uh, on the other side of the world, as Christy said, it, it 
or mentioned before, it um, really blew things out of the water in the week of the final, which of course was between the the Blues and the Crusaders in a full house. Although it didn't look entirely full at Eden Park, I must say on on Saturday night, but certainly was bumped up in the media beforehand as a sellout. Um, I guess it, it certainly took the gloss a little bit of shine off that, um, and really. You know, I guess Mark Robinson's response being, um, we won't play this out through the media. We'll have our discussions behind closed doors. Uh, how did you see it, mate? And, and I guess, how did you see the Super Rugby Pacific on the whole when being removed from it, not being at home in, in Australia? Yeah, then first of all, like I'm probably not cluey to a lot of the stuff that's happening in the in the back offices, um, et cetera. But I, um, like I really liked what Hamish McLennan came out and, you know, had a, had a really strong, positive, confident stance, um, you know, under, under everyone, you know, who's, who's under him in terms of Australian rugby, et cetera. Um, to me, we've always been treated like the younger brother from New Zealand rugby, et cetera. Um, and people think we need New Zealand. I don't, I've never thought we needed New Zealand. Like they do a great job over there. They've got great rugby players, great super rugby sides, all blacks, probably the most watched rugby team, most talked about rugby team in the world. But like that, 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 that doesn't help us. Like we have to worry about what's in our own backyard, uh, what Christy mentioned in terms of crowd attendance to games. You know, I'm, I'm big on the tribalism stuff. Like that's why you look at rugby league and AFL and I don't like comparing, comparing sports. But I think without tribalism, it's, it's hard to bring that passion. You look anywhere in the world, if it's the Premier League in England, et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time when we had the Super Rugby AU, it was the first time I've, had, I've really felt that tribalism just shot out in, in Australian rugby. And, and I loved it. The, the crowd attendances were better. Um, the TV viewers, the numbers were, were high, et cetera, compared to watching a, a Waratahs versus Highlanders game in Dunedin. Um, so, you know, like, I, I love that. I don't know what might happen. Um, and I think it's, it's positive if we work together <clears throat> with Australia and New Zealand to, to help each other. But at the same time, I think it's great someone like McLennan, you know, standing up for everyone under him in terms of his position in Australian rugby and, and being confident with, with our product because that's what you want as a player. You want someone at the top backing backing everything under him and and that's what he's done um and yeah i i love it i've watched a lot of super rugby pacific um you know i i watch mainly the brumbies game being yeah, brumbies games being quite biased um which i thoroughly enjoyed um but yeah you know i i love rugby in general i watch rugby all around the world and, and super rugby pacific they did a good job um but but so was super rugby au so I'm not really giving you an answer there, but I, I do. I do love the stance McLennan took in terms of um, just being being confident, being positive about Australian rugby. It's a it's a really interesting point in time because uh, the other thing that you've got to think about this at the moment is there's there's things like private equity that are coming into play. Um, clearly, Silver Lake has joined, um, signed a partnership, a deal with New Zealand Rugby, which is pumping up a lot of money. On the other side of the coin, South Africa, it looks like they're going to be joining with CBC. The Six Nations is also out of CBC. So, you know, Rugby Australia has this decision to make as well to do they continue over and what they've done over the last 18 months, borrow, 
um, and with the expectation that over the next 10 years, with the various the two World Cups, the Lions series, a, a series like this, which is about to start between the, the Wallabies in England, Com Games, Olympics, does does you know is the actual empire rugby Australia entity going to grow over the next ten years? Do you want to sell out right now when you're you know at your lowest end uh, that you've ever probably been at, or do you continue to borrow for the next one or two years and then once that money starts to come through? then do you sell? And it seems like I, I, I've got the hunch that, that the latter might occur, but Silver Lake has a, a vested interest with New Zealand to have a partnership with Australia and therefore Super Rugby um, in, a, in a trans-Tasman there. You know, perhaps there's this big bargaining chip there with CVC and, and that's the other element to it that's not really been discussed too much over the last couple of days. And I must admit, I haven't been able to, to, to bring ahead any of these points because I've been overseas covering something else but there's a lot riding here on 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 this decision and and you can understand why Hamish is thinking well look hang on they're getting 60 million dollars more than 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 Australia at the moment if you're thinking about a partnership to improve and help both well look it seems like New Zealand is just thinking about themselves because they only wanted to you know sign a, a shorter term deal um and not be able to help out their brother from the other side so yeah, I think you know, it's it's a it's a refreshing change of perspective here from Hamish McLennan because gone are the days where Ray Lancaster and Steve Chu uh, were very close. We know about the mentorship there. Um, Hamish is having none of that, and he's thinking purely of Rugby Australia. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting partnership. We've we've spoken about it before that yes, NZR and, and RAR together on this, but NZR definitely. The senior partner. They also own the expansion licenses, of course, of Moana Pacifica and and Fiji and Drua, despite the the Aussie government tipping in some money to help get the Drua up and away and playing. Um, but gents, I want to talk about this idea that that Super Rugby AU is could well could be the way forward for the game here. Now, is it dangerous to look at the success of that tournament, the two years that it ran? Um, during the pandemic and thinking that, you know, it was a completely different scenario to what we're in now. Um, I wonder too about this idea that bringing in another team in, say, Queensland and New South Wales, well, doesn't that just strip back and undo all the good work that the Reds and the Waratahs have been trying to achieve across the last three decades of of Super Rugby? I, I can guarantee, you know, the, the boards there aren't going to be too thrilled about that. Um and for me, it, it's nothing against the the Force and the Rebels, but I don't particularly want to see them play twice a year as much as I want to see the Reds play the Force or the Waratahs play the Rebels equally twice a year. By the time I get to year two or three of that, I'm thinking, geez, I'm getting a little bit weary of this, this competition. So I think that was great for the situation we were in, but I'm just not confident. Um, but perhaps, sorry, not confident that that can be a success going forward. But maybe that's because a bit like Lockie, I'm a lover of all rugby and I will watch it all. And perhaps the tribalism doesn't mean so much to me because I love watching the Kiwis play. I love watching the Australian teams play the Kiwis. Um, so my head's in a spin over this, but I, it's just to me, it seems very dangerous to think, hang on, uh, Super Rugby AU was such a raging success. Um, but what was the uh, what were the constructs around it at the time? Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, you know, second season of Trans-Tasman and we still haven't actually seen that fully integrated one given that the New Zealand government relaxed their trouble laws 
um, by the time that the season had already started, they had to plan, you know, the first eight weeks wasn't a crossover. So I think a couple of positives and big ticks from my perspective, to same time zone. That's been a huge one. Uh, we, we saw two matches in Fiji towards the end, both games crackers, both atmospheres amazing. And for the first 10 weeks of the competition, Fiji weren't allowed to play in their backyard. So unfortunately, the product looked terrible because they were playing on the Sunshine Coast in front of only a thousand or two. So there are a lot of, you can see a lot of the positives that are that are starting to come through. I, my, my personal perspective is that it won't change. However, you know, I, 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 I think if you were to have eight sides and you were to have a, a Western Sydney side and a, and a second Queensland side, it allows you to control a lot more things. Um, it allows you to control when you want to play the games, um, how long the, the season might go for, um, extra home games. Um, there are some other consequences and some, some positives as well to just having a Super Rugby AU comp. You can tinker with laws as you'd like. Um, we know that Super Rugby has been a little bit more um, uh, open to change as opposed to the North. Um, yeah, I, look, I think it's it's a very interesting point in time, particularly given we know what the runway is for Australian rugby over the next five to ten years. I, I can't see New Zealand wanting to say goodbye to, to Australia. I think that they're going to come back to the drawing board here, um, yeah, given... So given what's on the horizon. Some interesting talk. I think it was the Highlanders CEO yesterday, whose name escapes me, I haven't got it in front of me at the moment, saying that, you know, all 12 CEOs of the of Super Rugby Pacific were united in the belief that this was the way forward. Now, that would go against comments, I think, um, from the Brumby CEO, which might have been in the Herald story that followed yours, well, Cr- no, Christy. Brumby's chairman, Matt Nobbs, I spoke to um, Who's, who said that all six or all five Australian chairmans uh, were had been you know briefed on this and were in agreement. So w- whether or not that's completely true from the Highlanders CEO, I'm not quite sure. We also heard from the Crusaders CEO immediately, Colin, I think Mainsbridge is, Ma- is Mainsbridge, yep. uh, who had clearly had seen the benefit of Australian rugby um, and didn't want to to lose the uh, the Aussie presence there. So. Look, I think there's a lot of New Zealanders that were caught by surprise. I, I dare say Mark Robertson, the CEO of New Zealand Rugby, would have been across what had been told to him um, by, by his by his chairman, but perhaps he didn't quite know that it was going to be, um, you know, broken, leaked out to the media either. Lucky you, obviously. Be, sorry, mate, you go. I think it would be silly if New Zealand and Australia don't continue to work together to promote the product in both countries. I th- and I don't think that will ever change. Like we're same time zone. We're so close as, a, as two countries. That will always be there, that close link. Um, you know, as you said, Super Rugby adapts a lot better than most competitions throughout the world. And that will, that, that's a positive to, to keep getting better. Super Rugby Pacific will only keep getting better the next, the next year or two, et cetera, also. So there's a lot of positives um, you know, on the horizon for, for both countries, I think, and and with the the Drua and Moana Pacifica there too, I'm getting hopefully some more games in the Pacific region, I, I think is very important going forward. But I just, as Christy mentioned before, the stand that Hamish has stood, he hasn't said that we don't want to work with New Zealand and we're not going to play competitions with New Zealand. He's just, 
he's just made it clear that Australian rugby is his number one priority, which might have been missing with with previous leadership um, positions, you know, in the in the past. So, uh, you know, it's it's it, when a media story comes out, especially so many people love Christie's stories. Everyone talks about it and it buzzes for the first week, but um, I'm sure behind the scenes um, they will continue to work together to to promote the product in in both countries. Yeah, it's uh, as you say, Lockie. It really, you know, in a week where there was essentially no professional um, Australian rugby being played. Oh, excuse me, the Wallaroos, of course, were in action across the ditch. It um, it really put um, put the game back on the front pages, certainly of uh, of the Herald here in Sydney, and was a big story for us here at ESPN. And clearly, Christy, you started it all uh, on Fox through news. And, um, you know, it was, as I said, it actually, it got people talking about the game. It got people discussing the game um, and really thinking about what is possible moving forward. And it's great to see, you know, my Twitter feed, you get tagged in stuff. And, you know, three hours later, the, the conversation has moved yards away from where you are and people are still going back and forth on, on what they say are the best solution or sorry, what p- potential solutions for the game moving forward. And um, you know, it's, you, you got to tip your hat to Hamish as, as you guys have said that um, he really uh, you know, it's, it's a front foot stance. It's, it's, it's looking to dance down the wicket and, and hit it over extra cover to use a cricket term. And um, you know, you uh, in previous years when perhaps, you know, thinking back to when Greg Groudon, the late Greg Groudon was writing for us and he used to talk a lot about the power struggle um, or the power base that Australia had lost, not just at Sansa, but beyond at, at World Rugby, um, that, that Hamish McLennan, you know, and the rest of the RA execs, which have, you know, let's be honest here, we've all ripped into them plenty over the past couple of decades. Um, they've got the World Cups um, and they've clearly got the, the game, I think, headed in the, in the right direction. Um, Christy, you were going to jump in? Oh, I think you're right. You're bang on here. And we're going to talk some test rugby in a moment, but... You know, I actually think it was the perfect time to release the story, actually. You know, it's a, every, all eyes uh, or the, the very narrow focused eyes of perhaps those in Canterbury and Auckland were, were, were focusing on the Super Rugby final. But you think about this side of the ditch, very little was being written about rugby. A couple of weeks of, of, of nothing, really, before a blockbuster test series. And there's no way in hell you would want that story to be released midway through this series it'd be a complete distraction beforehand I thought it was great and it probably made more people aware that hang on there is actually a super rugby final but it also made people sit back and go right what's actually been good to hear about the Trans-Tasman series and and a perfect time to reflect on upon that at the end of the season rather than you know later in the year when everyone's just focused on maybe the, 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 the November tests or next year's World Cup. I thought it was an ideal, an opportune time to, 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 to think about that. And clearly that's why the chairmans of the respective unions were talking about it themselves because it was a good time at the end of the season. Yeah, very much a watch this space. Um, but um, yes, uh, mate, a, a final big congrats to you. Fantastic yarn, uh, great reporting. And and uh, we look, uh, we'll certainly be following uh, discussions uh, with interest for the rest of the year. Uh, let's talk a bit of footy. Um, of course, the the final one by the Crusaders at Eden Park over the Blues. Um, I must admit, I tipped the Crusaders. I did think that they were going to win. I thought they were finishing 
the stronger. And I think we certainly saw evidence of that the week before when the Brumbies finished right over the top of the Blues and we're very unlucky not to get a penalty, but we won't go back there. We'll focus on the final, Lockie. Um, I, I really enjoyed the game. I thought um, the Crusaders kind of dominated um, from the outset. Uh, we know how much, how uh, how easily they got up and and absolutely pilfered the Blues line-out ball. Um, Richie Mwanga, um was at his best, a couple of brilliant darts early on. And and just from way to go, they just looked unstoppable. And and probably the 21-7 scoreline was, uh, was a little easy on the Blues, I thought. It was just complete demolition job from the Crusaders. It was, mate. Um, it's not many teams play better finals footy than the Crusaders do. Um, they've done it for the last 10 to 15 years. They're the kings of it. Um, and they did it again. You know, credit to the Blues. I think Leo McDonald has done a terrific job there um, with his assistant coaches in the way they're playing rugby. Um, but as you said, you know, I think Leo McDonald talked about in the press conference after when you when Sam Whitelock's making a mockery of your of your line out and, and keeping the ball away from you. There's 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 literally not too much you can do. So um yeah, as you said, the the score line they actually did okay to to prevent this Crusaders from scoring more points um throughout that 80 minutes. But you know it's the best two teams all year. Um they both both teams deserve to be there. Um and Crusaders just did what they do when it comes to semi-final and, and grand final time. I'll tell you what, Sam, I'll, I'll jump in here now. The only person that was disappointed by this was Ian Foster because he is sitting there going, oh, no, not again, not again. Razor Robertson, a bloke that was under a little bit of pressure given the fact that can you continue this Crusaders juggernaut for a, what would it be, an, a fifth season now, or sixth season? The bloke can't lose. And, and it comes ahead of an Irish series where... Um, you know, they're under huge amounts of pressure. This Irish side, I think, aren't nearly as good as many people believe. They've just been beaten once again in the uh, European semifinals. Uh, they were smashed by the Saracens, um, uh, you know, up front. I still think they struggle a little bit in size, but I think the All Blacks can... Le- Leinster, you're talking about, mate, which forms a great uh, large part of the, the island squad. Yeah, and two-thirds of it, really. So... It's going to be interesting this series, and we're certainly going to be covering it from uh, an Australian perspective. But New Zealand has got, and I'm, I've made mention it the last couple of weeks, they've got serious problems and issues, and, and it comes around um, selection uh, as well as do they believe in the person that's actually coaching them. And, and we've seen once again now the Blues having won, what, 15 straight, I think it was, get beaten by a Crusaders side now. Is that a side that's more suited to test rugby? Is that because of Richie Mwanga? What, what is it? Because there's a lot of those sorts of questions that are going to come to a head over the next month. Yeah, I make it uh, probably six titles, I think, Christy, for you three in Super Rugby, two Aotearoas and and now Pacific um, because, of course, the Blues did went, win Trans-Tasman last year. The uh, yeah, Crusaders were undefeated. And we've got to remember too, I think the only reason why the Crusaders didn't make the finals because they didn't get bonus points. They actually were unbeaten, but they still missed the finals. So look, Scott Robertson hasn't missed a trick one one iota. And I think, you know, they're not going to make a coaching change just yet. But I, you, you have to question the, the players that are going to be pulling on the all-backs jersey and go, are they actually playing for Ian Foster? Because a lot of the times you have to look at what... Steve Borthwick has done with Lens, uh, with Leicester. 
and he's turned them around in one season. They didn't think he's done at Michael Checker in one season. Checker took two years. Well, Steve Borthwick, perhaps the smartest, best assistant coach in the world um, at an international level, has, has rocked up at, at Leicester and, and managed to take them to a title by beating Saracens, one of the absolute juggernauts of, of, of club rugby in the world. It's absolutely incredible. And no, no offence to the, the boys playing for Leicester because I love all of them, but their roster definitely isn't as pretty as the Crusaders roster too. So even more credit to, to what Borthwick has done in, in 12 months. Well, look, Lockie, bring, bring us into that. Tell us about it. Tell yeah. us some of those names oh. because we're going to see a few of them over the next month. You will. Guy Porter, first of all, um, you know, what a what an accomplishment he's made in, in 12 to 18 months and couldn't be happier for the bloke. He, he worked so hard, um, didn't get his opportunities in Australian rugby. Um, and you see a lot of guys go over and, and do well in the Prem, especially hardworking style players like Guy. Um, he barely missed a game. I think he missed three or four games in, in the whole of the Prem. And, and obviously Eddie's seen liked what he's seen and um, has included him in that squad. So, yeah, I, I think guys like Guy Porter, um, I could I could tell you a few names now and you would never heard of him. Tommy Raffel, um, Ollie Chesham, these guys, Harry Potter from, from Sydney Uni, et cetera, too. These blokes went over and some of them are local lads in the, in the academy, et cetera, too, that you, you wouldn't even know their names 12 months ago. Um, and they're coming up against a Saracens team that's filtered with internationals, quality players that have played finals for the year in, year out, played at the, at the, at the top level. And they, they stuck it to them, mate. They, they stuck to the game plan, what, what Borthwick gave them during the week. And, and I just, I, I couldn't have been happier for, for the lads, um, you know, guys like Freddie Burns, et cetera. Also Ellis Genge um, captaining the, the team after, a lot of criticism at the start of the year when when they put the C next to his name. So I um, couldn't couldn't have enough praise for the the guys in their squad and and also um, Borthwick. Once again, just before I finish, two guys that he brought in in Chris Ashton and R Richard Wigglesworth, like two two of the best buys in world rugby at the moment. Like that, those two are the best players on the field on on Saturday. Richard Wigglesworth put a clinic in. I think he's won seven premierships now. He was directing players. I know he does a little bit of the attack, the attack coaching at, at the Tigers too. I'm sure we'll see him as a, as a head coach, you know, in five to 10 years at the top level, the way he plays the game. And then you've got Chris Ashton. He's a top try scorer in, in premiership history. And just the work off the ball, the work off the ball he does is just, um, just incredible for an older bloke. So it's, um, yeah, mate, I was stoked to see. And last, last but not least, Wayne Barnes. The way he, the way he refs games. Um, now I think after him, there's a huge gap to the next yeah. best referee. He's there. I haven't watched a game that he refs that doesn't have a nice flow to it and consistency. He's he's really at the top of that game in terms of refereeing. And if there's ever a big game in terms of the World Cup or, or Six Nations, et cetera, et cetera. He should be the man in charge. Absolutely, yeah. If England aren't in that final next year, uh, you'd think he's got to be at the, the top of the list to get the job because uh, I think uh, I agree wholeheartedly. I think he's been the best ref in the game, even while Nigel Owens was running around, to be honest. I, I still thought then that Barnes was the best whistleblower 
around. Um, Christy, just before we leave uh, the All Blacks and the Super Final completely, um, I'll put this question to you. Do you think there are some people in New Zealand not not hoping that the All Blacks lose this series, but potentially wouldn't be all that saddened if they did and that might then force on a, on a coaching change? Or do you believe everyone now, from an outsider's perspective, admittedly, is united behind Fozzie and and uh, the fact that he's the man for the World Cup? Um, I would think that there is absolutely no chance that everyone is behind United behind Fozzie. I, I, would, I would go as far as to say only 35% probably would. You know, we've got to remember that at the same time that Ian Foster became coach, there was an internal, um, you know, vote of choice. Who would you prefer to see? And I, th- I can't quite remember the, the numbers at the moment, but it was a staggeringly high number that would have preferred to see Razor Robertson there or someone else. So um, in terms of the idea of would New Zealand fans like to see Ireland win, I, I think quite a few would. I think they've, they've probably enjoyed the fact that for once New Zealand actually aren't dominating much the same way when the Australian cricket team, you know, started to lose some of its older heads and, and, and greats of the game. New Zealand's caught between you know, ideology of how they want to play, but in particular, um, yeah, the style of play and, and who's best to deliver it because, and we're going to see this right the way through. There's no longer is there the clear-cut player um, that should be there. And that's been a combination between players now going to Japan, um, players uh, seeing those dollars over there, understandably, and and a, and a, and a and a coach who didn't quite ever deliver at, at super rugby level when, you know, he'd been there, the All Blacks assistant for a long, long time. Um, and do you strike whilst the iron is hot? I don't think New Zealand rugby would be brave enough to make the decision to get rid of him at this point in time, even if they were to lose the series. If they were to lose it 3-0, but I, I can't see that happening. And I still think that New Zealand will be too good for Ireland. But all that I think will do is just, you know, paint... Um, It'll, it'll paper over the cracks there because there's a lot in New Zealand rugby and you only need to talk to those that are there at the moment on the ground that that, that get this sense. Lockie, another guy, another coach who's under a little bit of pressure is is Eddie Jones. Um, of course, had the review after the Six Nations and was, was back through <clears throat> to the World Cup. Um, we know we had... Um, uh, sorry. Um, we spoke about Eddie's position earlier in the year um, thank you, Charlie Morgan, um, from the Telegraph in London. And um, he he talked, spoke us, talked us through um, what was happening up there in terms of Eddie's position and the feeling around Eddie moving forward. Um, now, I would think that if England did lose 3-0, now I'm not saying that's going to happen against the Wallabies. I think it's going to be an incredibly tight series um, that certainly he's going to come under a fair bit of pressure, you would think. Um I guess uh, there's some big omissions from his squad that we've known about for some time. Obviously, Manu Tuilagi uh, and, of course, Kyle Sinclair up front. Um, and, you know, some new faces, as we mentioned in the, in the squad earlier. And the, the Vunapola brothers are back, which is great to see. I've long-rated Billy Vunapola at number eight there and couldn't quite believe how he, he dropped down the pecking order. Um how do you see this series, mate, coming up? Um, and, uh, you know, I guess uh, what kind of style do you expect England to play? We know there was about 100 kicks in that premiership final. Um, is that the script for the for this series from England, despite, you know, all this talk around Marcus Smith trying to 
evolve the game plan and and a bit more uh, up tempo and and looking to to move the ball around. Yeah, I um, that I think I think Eddie's I think Eddie's safe, mate. I I don't think this close to a World Cup, um, you know, even with, even with the Foster stuff, I don't think you're making that change unless you're a very ballsy, brave man, um, a lot braver than me. Um, but I think especially after the Barbars game on the, on the weekend, they got beaten 52 to, to 2024 or something like that. And, and Eddie got heckled in the, in the press conference after which he wasn't happy about. Um, and he's already come out to talk about the aggressiveness of the Australian media, which I just love. I love personalities in the game and, and he's one of the biggest. So I'm really excited about that, but I genuinely think, I, I, I love England as a team, but I, I think they're, they could be in trouble this series. Um, they've got six big, big starters that are missing in, in George Ford. They've got Joe Launchbury out, Alex Dombrand, Sam Simmons, Cole Sinclair, Henry Slade, Manu Tuilangi and Anthony Watson. Like that six or seven starting players. And I, looking at the squad, they're all, they're all very, very good players. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think they've got the depth at the moment that they've probably had the luxury of the last probably eight to 10 years. Um, so it's a, it's a real test of, of Eddie's coaching. You know, if they come down and they can win this series with that, with that squad, I, I'd have high praise for, for, for Eddie Jones and his assistant um, staff, because I look at the two squads at the moment and the home advantage, and I um, I would definitely think Australia should win should win this series. Um, so, which you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be so confident in other series um, with the with the strength and the depth that England have had. But I I look at the two squads now, and I if I was a betting man, mate, I'd definitely um, I'd be tipping Australia to win this series. Christy, uh, different to when England came down in 2016, isn't it? Because Eddie was really only uh, not, I guess, six months into the job. Uh, there were Six Nations Grand Slam champions, had everything going for them. He'd brought back some older heads and, and Dylan Hartley, who we know then he, James Haskell, another one who he, who he then moved on within a couple of years and didn't make the World Cup. But um, as Lockie rightfully pointed out there, there are some big name omissions from his squad and, um, you know, there's a few guys there that I will fully admit I don't know a whole lot about that he's named. Um, but it just doesn't, when it was named, it, it didn't appear to me to have the same polish, the same fear factor, I guess, that England squad did uh, six years ago. Yeah, it, this is a this is a very interesting time for Eddie Jones. Oh, I think if if the World Cup was an extra year away and it was in 2024, I think you'd be in under the... In, in serious harm's way, I would think. But, you know, you think about the coaching at the moment, I, I have a hunch that Steve Borthwick could replace him and 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 it won't be after this season. And I think it could be after the World Cup. There's been an idea of having an integration of the coach that comes on board towards the end and maybe overshadowed or has a look, observes. There's no way in hell that Eddie Jones is allowing anyone into that English camp unless he trusts them completely. And the person that he trusts more than anyone at the moment in the world is Steve Borthwick, followed by Scott Wiseman, who's with the Wallabies. Uh, and and Borthwick, Bo- previously a member of his staff. Yeah, of course, with Japan, um, you know, and, and turned the Japanese around um, big time. Um, and then, of course, brought him to England. And, and we've seen since the loss of those two guys that I've just mentioned, two assistant coaches, England's attack hasn't been nearly as good. 
and England's um, uh, forward play hasn't been nearly as successful either. Um, I look at this English side and I reckon they know how they're going to play. Look, I'm just reading his book the other day and turning through some pages. He he spoke about the fact that he really liked Owen Farrell at 10 when Samu Karevi was playing at 12 because he thought that they needed more strength and muscle in the midfield to be able to combat Karevi. Clearly, Tuolangi's not going to be there, but he's so smart that he's brought back Danny Kerr at this time, who's been one of the form halfbacks for a couple of years. But to bring him back from exile to allow him to probably play with Marcus Smith at 10 and Owen Farrell probably at 12, I would say, now that Tuolangi's not there. I, I think that's supremely smart. Other coaches might not have done that because of the fact that, you know, Kerr hadn't played in a couple of years. Um, they've got Freddie Stewart at fullback, who's the best in the air since Israel Folau. They're going to play hugely contestable kicks. They're going to challenge the Wallabies, particularly at the line-out. Um, I know that the Wallabies with Dan McKellar will be very strong at the rolling moor. Probably their biggest area of weakness, I would say, is maybe a tight head. Losing Kyle Sinclair is a huge one. Huge, huge loss. But you think about the, the depth that they have at hooker. You know, they've got two British and Irish Lions players there with Luke Cowan Dickey and Jamie George. You compare that with the Wallabies who you go, hmm, I, I would who think... Is it? Yeah, exactly. So at two and at 15, I think England have a massive advantage and that's where I think they can tack and they can expose this Wallaby side because still today we're wondering who is the fullback and who is the hooker. And I tell you, I reckon that they're going to, if Tom Banks is there, well, you know, the short-term gain for long-term, maybe misery, the fact that Banks is unlikely to be there for next year's World Cup, as well as the fact that, you know, if Dave Parecki does start for the Wallabies, he hasn't. He hasn't played a, a test match, has he? Um, there's, there's some big questions there. And, and Taniela Tupo is shaping like he might miss that first test as well. So it's there, there's so many fascinating areas of this of this match going forward. I, I can't wait. I think that it'll be very close. And, and like when it came down to the 2016 series, it was 3-0, but they just won the big moments. Whoever wins these big moments is going to win this series. Lockie, before we let you go, mate, we're going to talk more around this series, the Wallabies England, a full preview on next week's pod. But um, something Christy and I were talking a little bit uh, two weeks ago now around the makeup of the Wallabies back row, of course, the position you play eight and six, um, and whether Harry Wilson and Robbie Valentini can play together. Now, you spoke a couple of years, well, I think last year around Bobby Valentini and what you'd seen from him, and he's only gone on from then to be probably the most dominant Aussie player in, in Super Rugby, despite that injury um, late in the season this year. Um, in your mind, uh, can those two play together? Or I guess, what is your six, seven, eight to start for the Wallabies in Perth on uh, on Saturday week? Oh, then I, I think you've, you lock in two positions straight away. It's pretty easy as a coach putting Valentini at six and you've got hoops at, at seven. Um, and, and then I think it'll generally go off who's training better and, and who looks better in that eight position out of Samu and, and Harry. So I, um, you know, both, both good players. Um, I'm sure both will do a good job, et cetera. Um, they're probably lucky that they don't have to make three, three decisions in that back row. They've got two sorted by the, by the form that Robbie and, and Hoops were enjoying Super Rugby Pacific, especially, especially Robbie. I think Robbie's gone to a stage now. I always talk about Robbie, but he's one of the best back rowers in the world. Um, and I don't say that lightly. I think, 
you you noticed him every single game and you noticed him more when he wasn't playing in that Brumbies team. Um, and, and they go forward, his physicality, his defence. You, you, the Brumbies really missed him. And you bring him back and and they nearly beat the, the Blues over there in, in a semi-final. He's, he's just gone to international level and I'm really excited to, to see his impact on on um, against England. I think Hoops' break in Japan did him wonders and he's always been a great player, but I think he's um, he looks really energetic and, he, and he's... And his normal self getting around the field over 80. And, um, you know, I think Samu might have a little bit of of um, advantage playing with Robbie week in, week out. And that combination between six and eight, I, I think, might give him the leg up. But, you know, at the same time, Harry's a really promising young um, number eight. Um, he's tough. He likes a physical battle that I'm sure England will will throw throw at us um, and I don't think you can you can make a bad decision out of out of those two at, at the back Lockie, tell me you you said Robbie Valentini at six there but uh, I, I would have thought that he's shaping up more likely to play at eight for the wallabies what why why do you think Rob six and secondly what do you see as the you, you played in both those positions yeah what do you see is the key difference between the two um I, th- I think eight's more a link player for me and every coach and every team's a little bit different. Um, I think eight's a little bit more like a, a Samu style role that, you know, fl- you could say floats around and looks for opportunities a, a little bit. Um, as a six from a, from a scrum, you're normally carrying first phase around the corner and there's probably not many better players than Robbie. You normally have the seven and eight at that first breakdown um, and then you've got the, you know, big barging six coming around and, and hopefully running at a at a 10 or 12, which Robbie does really well. Um, I'm just going off off what the what Dan McKellar and the and the Brumbies have used used Robbie. He plays six and eight really well. Um, you know, but I would I would start him at six because I think he gets his hands on the ball probably a little bit more. Um but you can't you can't go wrong. I guess if you want to play Robbie at eight, then you've got to look at who would play at six. Um, and I don't think there's any point playing Petey at six and and Robbie at eight when they've played all year in their different roles. And I think they're more natural at six and eight too. So um, you know, good good selection problems for the Wallabies to have. But that's a, that's the way I'd look at it. Yeah, great insights, and and really a good point around uh, the uh, the rolling around uh, off the scrum or, or line out there. And I guess you can use uh, Robbie as that uh, lead carrier in midfield off off the line out in either position, but off certainly off the scrum, being that first uh, one around the corner to to take that uh, that first or that second phase really um, moving forward. Uh, mate, thanks very much for joining. Great to to have you on this week. Um, all the best with uh, with things wrapping up there in uh, in MLR. We know there's a bit to play out, uh, mate. So hopefully that gets sorted for you soon. Thanks, mate. I might um, look for start looking for a job for me back there, possibly. And um, good luck with everything. Catch up in Oz. Thanks, mate. Hey guys, if you like this podcast and you like footy, why not join myself, Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels and champion data's Christian Jolly as we break down all things footy with the help of the game's best statisticians. Get the ESPN Footy Podcast wherever you stream your podcasts every Tuesday. Pleasure now to welcome back in for the second time this year, Brittany Mitchell, 
uh, ESPN colleague, uh, Britt, great to see you. Uh, great time to get you on, uh, given the uh, conclusion of the Women's Pacific Four Nation Series across in New Zealand. Uh, unfortunately, not a great result for Australia, dropping all three games to New Zealand, the US and then Canada uh, last Saturday. Um, must premise this by saying that m- most of these matches were played in terrible conditions, uh, wet, muddy, um, slippery uh, games, all of them up there in uh, in the north uh, part of the North Island in New Zealand. Um, but I guess just to start with, um, how did you assess the the series on the whole? Um, hard to say, I guess this is a, a step forward given the three defeats, but um, there certainly were a few positives for the Wallaroos in there as well. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it as you said, it is a a, a bit difficult to kind of measure up where they are. Um, they're just off the back of two years of no tests. Um, they did a quick series against Fiji and Japan before they went over to New Zealand. And as you said, they uh, dropped all three matches. I think most disappointingly, they were in every game uh, against New Zealand. They were up 10 nil and fell apart, fell away in the second. USA, they held them out for pretty much the whole 40 minutes of the first half, um, came back in the second and then, uh, you know, fell, uh, just couldn't get there in the end, two-point loss there. And then against Canada, as you said, <laughs> atrocious conditions. No one wants to be playing rugby in those conditions. And, um, you know, they just couldn't hold hold them out. Um, I think it should be noted that they haven't beaten any three of these teams in a long time. They haven't ever beaten New Zealand. I think it's 20 years since they last beat the US. And I, uh, I don't think they've beaten Canada in quite some time either. So expecting them to go out there and um, blitz the field, I think, is a bit unfair. Um, we we did see some positives, though. There is a lot of youth in that squad, uh, and a lot of them did step up and make a mark in this series. Uh, disappointing that there was a few injuries. Uh, Avania Wong has played really well in her few minutes, and, and she just got injured early in the series and, and missed out of the last two games. Um, uh, who else was it? Uh, Talakai, uh, Adiana Talakai, the, the starting hooker, also injured after the first New Zealand game. So, you know, it does change the dynamic of a team, especially a team that's trying to find their footing um, and develop ahead of a World Cup. And then you're missing your, your starting hooker, which, you know, it was really felt uh, the last two games, their line out just I hate to say it, it was it was a shambles. Terrible. You know when you when your hooker is you know can't throw it in is getting pinged for not straight. You know I think they lost um, one game. They they lost four lineouts, another three lineouts. Um, the USA game they had a lineout uh, within the within the US half and you know perfect position to score and and win that game and they fumbled it and they they lost the game after that. Um, so there's those little things, you know, set piece is such a big part of a game. And if you can't get your line out going and even their scrum uh, was really pushed in that Canada game, if you can't get the scrum going, you've got no way to work off. Um, but I, yeah, look back at the positives, Bella McKenzie, when she came on against the US, her boot was just incredible um, changed the dynamic of the game completely. We saw Grace Kemp make a um, 
debut off the bench against Canada and she had this incredible barn summing run, um, run. And it's just the depth that we have in the back row especially is crazy. So, yeah, as we said, there's some there were some negatives, but there were some positives. And uh, the next two tests against New Zealand will will give us a good indicator of, of what we should expect um, come October in, at the World Cup. I think the analysis with the with the hookers is really important because it's not just a, a Wallaroos issue. This has been a, an Achilles heel for a long, long time for the Wallabies too. You think about all the times Wallabies throw has been picked off and it's important that these sorts of things are discussed. Um, I must admit, I only saw the first of those those matches when the Wallaby, Wallaroos took that 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 lead against the, the Black Ferns. Tell me, what did you think about the midfield? Because it seemed like they lacked much the same way that when the Wallabies or England haven't had a, a Manu Tuolangi or a, or a Crevy, a little bit too lateral at times and not been able to, to punch holes through the midfield. Is, from memory, there has been a bit of talk around Shani Williams coming into this side at some stage. Is she is sort of the, the type of woman that can come into the squad and, and perhaps we know how her pedigree in sevens, we know that she's played 15s before, could she be the answer to to one of those positions in the midfield? Yeah, definitely. I uh, chatting to Shani yesterday, and 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 she's really keen on on uh, making a return to the Wallaroos. So I think that's definitely an option they'll have to look at. Um, Georgia Fredericks has done really well at outside centre, but as you said, it's just there's no one really hitting those holes. And, and against Canada, whenever they did look, they were they were bending the defence, there was a fumble, um, there was a drop ball. And even just there's the quick ball out of the ruck, it's just not there. Um, and just inaccurate passes. If, if you're getting messy ball out of the back of a breakdown and you're nine sending it to your 10 and it's, you know, it's behind or it's low, it just ruins any kind of momentum that you have. Um, your forwards are pushing pushing up and making some metres and he starts sending it wide and there's just a ball that it's just, you know, inaccurate and you can't you can't do anything off that. And as you said, they, they're going really lateral and I think that's the issue. You know, there's that one inaccurate pass and suddenly they just have to shuffle it along and almost expecting to get it to the wing and the Ivania Wong or, um, oh, my God. <laughs> and Mahalia Murphy, Murphy just that the, they'll just you know create something um that they'll just find something out there run around the defense and or you know run over the defense and you know they, they can do that in super w level easy enough Mahalia Murphy's proven that she can just That's tumble good, yeah. over the top of someone but as we saw in this series mm, no it's not going to happen when you've got you know, girls in the US squad who are just as good, girls in the New Zealand team who know how to make those big hits. So, yeah, I think Shani Williams is definitely something that Trigoni's going to have to look at. Um, I think just her experience as well will just be a massive inclusion. Our back line is quite young. A lot of the girls hadn't played Test Rugby before um, or, you know, a big two-year two break, getting some international experience and some World Cup experience will be really important in, you know, finding, getting some direction in that back line. Britt, what about then this, I guess, this period of, albeit brief, of professionalism for these women, the fact that they have had 
basically a month together, um, a couple of weeks, I think, before they left on uh, up in Queensland. Or, and then, you know, three back-to-back games, albeit in the, in the space of, um, I think, about 12 days in the end. Um, but the time training in between together continually, um, not just that, eating meals together, socialising together, what do you think this is going to do and how important for the girls, for the Wallaroos in this season? Um, how much of a, of a positive is that, just that time together as a unit? Yeah, I think it'll be huge. Um, as we said, like every team, two years without anything. They went. They were meant to have multiple um, training camps last year, all of them cancelled. And uh, those little things, just not being able to come together you know, doing video analysis um, all across the country, um, even just your coach being, they didn't even meet their coach face-to-face and, until the start of this year. They had a whole new coaching setup. Uh, all those little things are so important in, in the success of a team. Uh, so coming together and getting those few weeks together is, is huge. Um, I think we've seen, uh, if you've been following them on social media, They've loved being together, being part of a team, uh, getting to know each other, um, being a part of a group. So it, it is a, a massive thing for them. Uh, I think we did witness more of the professionalism on field, though. The issue is that uh, the longer Rugby Australia takes to make them a completely professional unit, uh, the wider the gap is going to be between them and the rest of the world. We saw against USA. Um, in Canada, there's uh, quite a few girls in those squads who are playing in the premiership in uh, the UK and just that step above they had, um, just the fitness as well. So those little things, you know, if, if Rugby Australia, uh, uh, you know, want to make this Wallaroos team successful, they, they really need to start putting the money into it. They need to put their money where the mouth is because, you know, you can't expect a, a team that's semi-professional coming together only a few weeks in a year to take on these teams that are, you've got girls who are, are playing just months of rugby a year and, and coming into a, pro, a, a fully professional setup and, and know, you know, what's required of them. So. I, I, it's, it's a good point there. And, and we earlier discussed around the rumblings of New Zealand rugby and, and rugby Australia. I, I would imagine that a bit of that is going, well, it's not just the men's game that RA is trying to fight for money here. I think it is probably the women's game too. Like we've got to remember as much as the, the men's product at the moment is the money maker of, of the lot. I think you know, having met Cambridge countless times, the women's rugby is something that he is very, cognizant of the importance of so an extra couple of million dollars from the other side of the ditch to help elevate the standard of rugby for women's here i think it's got to be a huge one and we've got to remember Britt and christy that um i mean last week's announcement the nrlw is is going to 10 teams rather than eight yeah. they're jumping bringing four in to their women's comp uh moving forward um you know, the competition, and, and this is something that Britt and I were talking about in the office earlier this week around uh, a couple of years ago was, well, f- how fantastic is this across all sports that, you know, there's, there's women's growth and that we can see that there's money on the horizon, albeit, you know, little sums at this point, but um, getting the opportunity to play at, you know, big stadiums in front of crowds and and uh, just, you know, a real buzz around not picking off sport and saying, oh, like we do, you know, in the, the men's side of things and that you can hate AFL or hate rugby league or hate rugby and you're very passionate about your one code. 
very much in the women's space. It was, isn't this just marvelous for women's sport as a whole, but that's quickly shifted. Hasn't it Brit? Now it's, it's very much that the fight is on for resources. The fight is on for talent, the generation next, the, the boots on the ground across the, the playing fields all over the country that, um, and RA is, is chasing its tail when you feel like, you know, the AFL has gone to or is going to 18 teams to match the men's next season. Um, and the uh, the NRLW are going to be more than halfway there now themselves moving to 10. These are big moves from the other codes. And, and RA, certainly in comparison with the NRLW, where we know in both men's and women's rugby that uh, and rugby league that a lot of kids play both growing up, that... Um, there's one code that's pushing ahead with the the teams and the resources and the other one that is, you know, can barely get a, a few weeks together for, for professionalism in a, in a world cup year. Mm, definitely. And I, I mean, just myself at local club level, uh, we're feeling it, you, you know, our 15s team um, we've had at the moment where we're getting girls in who currently play league and they uh, are getting paid playing on the weekends. There's a few girls who are actually going to play State of Origin this weekend. But, you know, that's the fight that we have on our hands just at club level, trying to fill in the numbers. And, you know, there's girls who have left my club previously to go play league because they were getting paid on the weekend. They were getting a couple hundred dollars a week, whereas, you know, we, we can't offer any of that. So even at club level, we're already feeling it. Um, uh, yeah, so I think we noticed at sevens just years ago when RA made that decision, we have to make this a fully professional outfit. It paid dividends. We were the number one team in the world. We won that gold medal and we had thousands and thousands of young girls who wanted to be the next uh, Charlotte Kaslick. And they, you know, my club is an example. Again, we have two sevens teams now. The local competition is full of girls the juniors is smashed by how many girls I have it's just translating that back into 15s and I think that's uh going to be the the, the big issue is trying to uh, push these young girls who are excited who see this sevens comp and they, they see how exciting it is and try to push that into 15s um but yeah, it's it's as you said that they are already chasing their tails. They they've kind of almost gone backwards when it comes to um, club level 15s. Shoot Shield's an example. Um, they've just decided that next year every Shoot Shield club has to have a 15s team. And where do you find you know these props and hookers and and things like that in a, a local Sydney comp that you know you can't just throw girls in who haven't had any training before there's you need to build from something uh so how they they tackle this issue and and how they take this going forward it's not just uh an easy thing of, of it'd be fantastic if it was the answer was just turn the the wallaroos and super w professional and we'll get the numbers i mean it will definitely go a long way in helping it but it's you know from the ground up as well building those junior competitions into the seniors into something bigger I'm I'm pretty optimistic about women's rugby in the country, and and it and it is in part. I think the women's World Cup. Um, no one's focused on it nearly as much, but that is a huge result securing that for 29 because we know that the sevens going to an Olympics, you know, men's, uh, women's AFL and women's NRLW, they simply can't match going to an Olympics. It's it's probably the greatest sporting thing, and it's why more people watch the Olympics than ever before. And it's not just the on-field stuff, it's the commercial aspect that 
women that go to a, a, a games and potentially bring home a medal. And if you're playing for Australia, that's quite likely. You can't match it playing in RLW. You simply can't. And you could see some of the language being used by those like Emma Tonegato earlier in the year um, when securing, uh, you know, either titles or, the, or Dalian medals, kind of suggesting that without saying it, because it's very difficult for someone who's now getting paid in that program to come out and speak against it. But that's the real advantage that Australia has, particularly in the women's setup. Is the Commonwealth Games, a couple of them, one on home soil in Melbourne, and, and then a, a home Olympics as well. That's where Australia can really capitalise, and it's their point of difference. Once some money starts to filter through, which I would imagine in the next three years will, will happen right across the board, I think the world is the oyster for women's rugby. Mm. Rick, just yeah. um, before we wrap up, a, a final, give us the runway then for, for the Wallaroos. Uh, through to the World Cup. Um, clearly, that kicks off in, I think, about the second week of October. Um, and uh, just run us who, who's in their pool and, and what lies ahead before then. Yeah, so uh, I guess first up is uh, the two-game uh, series against the Black Ferns, which is coincides with the uh, Men's Bledisloe Cup. So that's a uh, Palmer Cup that the women play for. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, the, the Wallaroos haven't defeated the Black Ferns yet. Hopefully, this is their year. It'd be a massive, massive result if they could get something over the Black Ferns. So, so they're over in New Zealand and then uh, at home, a doubleheader in Adelaide. And then uh, it's off to the World Cup. Black Ferns again, first up the, to open the, the World Cup. Uh, and then we take on Scotland and Wales. So that'll be a, a really interesting, you know, few games. Not too sure uh, where where the Wallaroos kind of sit amongst those two teams. Uh, we haven't played them in a long time. Um, obviously, uh, a, a lot of the girls in those teams probably also play in the Premiership uh, competition over in the UK. But that that should be really exciting. I think the girls will be really keen to kind of rip in against those two teams. Uh, the way the format for the World Cup has changed this year. So now it's a, a top eight teams go into uh, quarterfinals and then semis. So for the Wallaroos to get through, they need to either finish first or second or hope that if they finish third, that they're um, one of the top two third place finishes in the in the um, draw. So I think that they're, they're, it's got to be uh, a tough tough outing for them especially like what we saw over the last few weeks in New Zealand that weather if we're gonna we're likely to see similar kind of weather like that in October so if they can get their head around wet weather rugby like what we've just seen um it should be great I mean I think everyone should be excited about what's coming in the future I know we we kind of went on about a, a, a comes list that we just saw, but there's still so many positives that we should be excited about. So many young girls that, you know, this will be their first World Cup and should grow and become even better and, you know, progress for, you know, 29. Like how exciting that whole road over the next few years is going to be for the Wallaroos. So I, I think if people are holding off now, don't. You know, you got to jump on that bandwagon now. It's, you know, the future is bright for these girls and we should be excited about it. Absolutely. Uh, Britt, thanks for making the time today. Uh, anyone else wanting to 
learn a little bit more about uh, what the Wallaroos did uh, in the Pacific Four, go on espn.com.au forward slash rugby and find Brit's uh, review on the Wallaroos from that tournament. And we look forward to following your content for the rest of the year. Uh, Christy, mate, uh, thanks again for the time. You look like you need to go and grab a few hours shut eye, mate. So uh, hope you enjoyed the time in Chicago. And Yeah, there was that in a shave, but you're right. Um, and, and absolutely applaud what Brit's doing because there's few rugby journos in the country that's doing more to support the game, particularly the women's game than Brit. So absolutely jump on that. Jim Tucker, another one that's been doing a lot for the women's rugby. Um, it's really important. And, and you can only do that by clicking onto these stories because uh, look, speaking to, and I'm not going to call these people out, but speaking to other, uh, you know, journos, there, there's pressures from editors. And unfortunately editors say, well, who, no one's reading these stories. I can't afford you to spend four or five hours chasing it. And the only way you change that is by clicking and by supporting it. So do that. Here, here. Thanks, guys. Uh, and thanks, everyone, to listening. A bumper rep this week. We'll be back uh, next week, as I said, with a full Wallabies England preview. Uh, hoping to get uh, former England lock Ed Slater on the pod to, to join us for that one. Uh, can't wait. Uh, and, yeah, as ever, hit us up on social media. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon.